I'm Aisha Taylor-Kamara, and in this three-part series, I'll be exploring the black pioneers in British radio broadcasting from the early 20th century... This is Unum Boston introducing West Indians in Britain. ...right through to the beginnings of the 21st. It tells the story of the often-neglected voices of Black Britain who served their communities. <laughs> the pirate radio stations, like DBC and LWR... which inspired the creation of black-owned licensed radio stations like WNK and Choice FM. And not just those who served the communities whose culture, tastes and interests were not being catered for by the mainstream, but those who also served the wider British public. We often find that these voices are left out of the usual history books. When they are, we have to question why and look at who's telling the story. And not just who's telling the story, but who's dictating it too. Who's dictating what should be said and how these stories should be told, 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 told. It is also not just the fact that these black broadcasters and voices on the radio are left out of the history books. It's also that their works weren't even recorded. Even when they were, we are told that because the audience they were talking to or the amount of listeners to the show was so small, that exploring this further is not worth it. The programmes are somewhat deemed insignificant. Or when we get told that these programmes were recorded, they were lost. So they say. Say, 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 say. So throughout this series, I've spoken to a number of people, including researchers, academics and also some of those black pioneers who've helped make British radio broadcasting what it is today. In this episode, I speak to Martin Jay, DJ and former Choice FM presenter, Dr David Jima, a journalist, senior lecturer and former BBC Black London presenter, Roger Griffith, former CEO and chair of Ujima Radio in Bristol, and Marceline Powell, the founder of Kemet FM in Nottingham. Welcome to In Safe Hands, the voices of Black Britain. In the last episode, you heard about the pirates and licensed stations like DBC, Choice FM and WNK and the massive role in black people's lives they played. And pioneers like Leroy Anderson, Joe Douglas and Choice FM's Martin Jay. I'm really, really proud that I was part of that family. I think back to events like choice Athon, which was, I think, a 72-hour fundraising marathon. George and Ernie started broadcasting at 7 o'clock on the Friday evening, and they went right through Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I think they stopped broadcasting about midnight on Sunday night. Those kind of things where we, we, you know, we were out raising money, the work that we'd done with the ACLT, Peace on the Streets campaign, you know, the music that we brought to the ears of London and how we brought it. Choice of Femme, what it done in the UK was amazing. Absolutely amazing. But the story and the impact that they made doesn't end there. There's a couple of other stories of black pioneers in radio that I would like to share. Whilst Choice was starting, what Alex Pascal had created with Black Londoners on the BBC was continuing. In a different capacity, with David Jima and Cheryl Sims. The head of 
radio called myself and another woman. Her name's Cheryl Sims. And I think she'd been Cheryl and she'd had an interview with me and she just thought both of us would work really well in the sense that we were young. We were both of that age where we recognised the sort of fruity programmes that were taking shape on the BBC and Channel 4 and that we'd bring something to it. We sort of gelled. We had an hour um, of the programme each, I think it was Wednesday, because there was Jewish London, Irish London, and then there was Black London, and I think it was Asian London. So those four were the kind of community slots. Tackling the big issues that black people wanted to hear and uplifting people's spirit. With interviews with some of the biggest stars, like Fela Kuti and Eartha Mae Kitt. I would probably recount three or four interviews that were seminal. One was Fela Kuti, you know, who essentially, <laughs> essentially came into the studio with tight purple trousers, probably no shoes or was wearing chaliwatis, those really slippers, a fur coat, and it was winter and it was cold. He came into the studio and he tried to light a spliff. And I remember telling him, please, fella, if you do this, I'm going to get the sack. So you put it away. We had a fantastic time. I brought in an old friend who used to work at the African service to listen in. And he came and joined me, uh, Max Jowett, who today used to work with Kofi Annan. Today is a big shop on, on, in Africa. Um, but um, I remember when we finished and Max <laughs> reminded me, we went clubbing. I went clubbing with, 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 to gossips with fella. And before that, we went for a meal. So it was like me, some 20-something nobody, with this superstar fella Kuti going, hey, let us go. Where we we can we eat? And I'm like, um, uh, um, okay. So we jumped into my Honda, my Honda, flashy Honda Prelude car, and away we went. The undisputed performer of Africa, a man that once ran for office of president in Nigeria who has a love-hate relation with the authorities and at one time had more than 27 wives, is a man by the name of Fela Kuti. His life is one big performance. At the age of 54, his enthusiasm and get-up-and-go resembles a sprightly teenager. A concert last week at the Brixton Academy almost took the roof off with its decibel levels as more than 30 musicians his band took to the stage. He found time to come in before the gig to tell us about some of his antics in the 70s such as lighting up on a no-smoking aeroplane after being deported from Ghana. Then we, then we realized we had no house to go to, man. The house had been burnt. So, wow, where are we going to go? We were holding something, people, man. That was the entourage, the people that... Yeah, I had my 27 wives would be in the plane on the field. The other ones were coming in the bus. Where are we going to go? And I had a friend called JK. He had a flat, just a flat, one room, one guest room and a sitting room and a dining room. And you and 27 wives and... We got in there, man. <laughs> and we set carpet and mattresses in the sitting room. So all my wives were sleeping in the sitting room and I went to the guest room to sleep. So that gave me my privacy to call my wives one by one, you know. The other one I remember really well was Eartha Kitt. She was coming to the studio and her, her publicist said, whatever you do, don't ask her to purr. I think our listeners will generally know that her kids still going strong, octane eight. Yes, yes, very strong. Wow, yes. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask you for that because I thought there might, it might come across as a bit of a cliche. But thank you very much. Anyway. Okay, you're welcome. It's not just about representation in these industries, but action too. They were trying to bring back the black and white minstrel show onto the BBC. Yes. 
And so in the studio, we had one of the producers. It was an indie company. And we were having this conversation. And we said, well, what, 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 don't, is this offensive? Don't you say, well, no, it's just a bit of fun. Da, 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 da. And so, well, no, because we felt, and, and in fact, I think I said something like, why don't we consign this to your TV heaven or our TV hell? Because it's no longer, I don't think it lasted actually. I think it came on either one or two shows. I'm not entirely sure. But um, those were the sort of issues that we were, were dealing with. Using your voice and standing up intervening when things that are reported aren't the full truth. I remember very well, I don't have the program, but I remember very well the day when the LA riots kicked off and a network reporter said, um, black people are looting. And myself, I think Cheryl and another producer were watching the screens going, what? They're black and white, how dare you? And we both inside the BBC jail, I were ringing BBC Maine to say, what's your, what's your reporter doing? That's not what's going on. And then we could go on air and then talk about that. And that was some of the key moments when we felt, okay, at least we've got a voice to be able to address issues that we felt at the time could just be another, another, another incident. Many of these pirates and licensed stations and pioneers that you've heard me talk about and say have inspired a lot of community radio stations in cities across the UK. Like Ujima in Bristol and Kemet FM in Nottingham, still going today. There seemed to be a lot of problems when it came to um, people from black communities accessing certain information or, you know, support or opportunities. And when I was um, representing these companies and, and communities with regional development agencies, arts council, etc., they were always telling me that it was difficult to interact uh, or target the black community specifically because we didn't engage in the same ways with mainstream media. So that caused me to start looking into the reasons why. Now, at the time, I worked for an organisation called the African Caribbean Development Agency. So my work was, my role was very much around, you know, lobbying and getting involved in these things. But everywhere I looked, I just kept getting this issue of communicating with the black community, which then took me to Ofcom and said, well, if, if there's such an obvious issue and such an obvious gap, why in places like Nottingham hadn't there been any conscious effort to make sure that there was a medium, you know, that represented our, our community? And basically they didn't have an answer. <laughs> they are still going strong because they have had a clear strategy from the start. I came off the board of Kemet to do other things. So I've done lots of other work since since Kemet. Um, but as you know, it is still it is still going. Um, and I think it was it was created with a strong strategy in terms of um, advertising revenue, you know, events, um, show sponsorship, and things like that. Um, and that brings you know kind of touches back on what I said previously about moving away from that voluntary sector mentality. And I think across any organisations or industries where we're operating especially where we're trying to encourage or support other people, is that we need to be more enterprising. And I think media offers a lot of opportunity, actually, uh, to be enterprising. Providing for the communities that they serve, but making sure that there are other elements, such as helping young people to learn. It existed under the Sea Charity, but then it went, um, see the whole organisation fell apart and went bankrupt. And at that point, I, as chair of the board then, had to come up with some solutions and I then said we need to go social enterprise and have some a community business social action projects that we're going to make a difference. Roger Griffith who helped Ujima Radio Strive. My hopes that we would we would um, be uh, a solution provider to deliver 
uh, uh, media training, media and arts and, uh, and, and culture, really. And I think I was, you know, had the template in to uh, deliver that. So we would deliver training, very much stuff that I saw in the 80s and the 90s that I grew, that helped save me. So we would have media training in, as in labs of providing that. It would be from the people who would be delivering that. We'd get other people in to deliver part of that community learning approach. And uh, the media, the radio station would just be one aspect. We'd have an arts arm. We'd have a social enterprise arm. There would be many, it would be a community enterprise uh, that was delivering services that were fit for the 21st century and not the, the century before. If those some of those people were young, so great. And we have that would be one of the enterprises. But as an adult learner, I knew that was going to be my sole focus. Um, it was the mums returning from school. It was those who were coming out of prison. It was people like me who didn't have an education but needed it, but knew they had something in them and just needed that guidance through. And it might be the first start of a course or, a, or an access to university course working with the universities. So I wanted to apply a plethora of opportunities to provide solutions to our current times of uh, high unemployment within uh, black men and even graduates being underemployed or underpaid in services or a range of, of things, of solutions is what I wanted. And Marceline Powell, one of the few black women radio founders and executives that you will find. As a black female director, full stop, you know, it's a lonely, <laughs> it's a lonely place. <laughs> Um, I've sat on a lot of boards as director and I'm usually the only female. Um, and, you know, in the past I've been interviewed on that specific thing itself in terms of saying, you know, where are all the black female directors? And, and they are out there. I've worked in media now for, well, 15, 20, oh, about 15 years, I'd say. And I've worked for regional media companies. I've worked for local media, so newspapers. I, I actually now own a, a media company which publishes a magazine and a, a news website for the black community. And in those areas, I find a lot more women. In radio, I've felt very much on my own. My experience, I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying this, wasn't great. <laughs> it's, it's very tough, very tough. I, I would say not only because it's male-dominated, and I'd say that's in the, in black, the world of black media, if you like, but also in my experiences in, in wider like mainstream media, local media, etc. It's very male-dominated, and... In, in the world of black media, I would say it's very much old school. So there's kind of an old school attitude to how people approach things. Um, I think within the black community, we're still hopefully moving away from that voluntary sector mentality where we're not thinking about, um, you know, being enterprising and, and, and generating income, reinvesting, training young people, which is what I think we need to see in terms of any development of black media anywhere. I think that's important. And I, I fear that because of those old sort of old school ideas, that that's not really, you know, what's been happening. So we get these radio stations, we're playing music, we might have some topical conversations, then it kind of peters out. And I fear that was kind of similar with, with Kemet. The idea was to also have a training, you know, facility alongside that. Um, and I think things like that need to be need to be focused on so that we can see more young women coming through. Um, well, young black people full stop coming through media, but more young women coming through, definitely. So as I bring to a close the last episode of this In Safe Hands series, here's a message of advice to those listening, from those who paved the way to those who want to follow in their footsteps but may be afraid. The biggest lesson I've learned is that things will go wrong. Just keep on going. It might sound like a really, really simple lesson, but they do, they go wrong. 
They don't go to the plan. A problem is just a solution waiting to happen. Go for it is the first thing. Don't let anything stop you. As I say to my daughter, go in to any situation boldly and learn as much as you can because everything's a learning curve. So even when you feel like it's a battle, just remember that there's lots of lessons that are there for you to learn. And the earlier you can learn those lessons, the more you've got in your armory as you go forward. Invest in in, in the marketing. Stay humble and, and always have a good core of of, of mentors uh, and, around, and around you. And, um, even if they don't always look like you and I, um, yeah, I call them uh, enemies and frenemies. And, and some of the best advice I've got is from people who are outside of my circle, um, but willing to uh, help. Whilst it is important to be at the table eating and drinking we must also be conscious of who are the ones dishing out the servings. And not just who's serving the portions, but who's making it too. Who are the ones in the kitchen cooking the food? The likes of David Olusago have been talking about, and many others, about, you know, behind the scenes. You know, being front of camera is fine, but it's the power is behind it. It's going to be convincing producers, senior producers and the rest that having diverse talent doesn't diminish the output. In fact, what it does is it enriches it. I think the only thing I would probably say is, how do you get that done? By continuing to do the things that many people are doing in this field, lobbying, pressing, speaking to people. Um, so Lenny Henry talks about being on the, you know, being at the table and making the food. As black people, we are often only given one chance there's no room for mistakes. But as we strive to take our seats at the table, we have to remember who has paved the way and also support other black people around us, the ones who are making our plates. There's such a rich black broadcasting history in the UK and it deserves recognition and celebration. And as we critically discuss the construction of certain narratives around black people in Britain, the institutions who control the mainstream narrative and continue to withhold should take responsibility and accountability for these missing parts of history. It is not about being afraid to look back because of what we might find. We need to do as much as we can to keep black people's work in Britain and their stories alive. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this project and have learned some things too. So here's one last story from a black woman in the audio industry about the rhythm and blues. Loving the rhythm but not the blues by Naomi Gray. My mother, my two older siblings and I moved to Nottingham when I was five, back in 1987. It was a fresh start for us after living within the military barracks in Aldershot as my dad was in the army. My mum loves music and would dig into her playlist and play her old records, especially on the weekends. In 1988, a new pirate radio station called Heatwave Radio was on the scene. Heatwave, you are the sound for the world. It was created by prominent black musical figures in the city and was to be enjoyed by the black community and, to be honest, everyone who respected our culture. It quickly gained a large following and would be on rotation with various DJs 24-7, including two of my uncles who had shows on there. Every day, especially the weekends, we would listen to the sweet sounds of reggae, dance, R&B, hip-hop and much more. 
No matter if I was at home or staying with my aunt or grandparents, Heatwave Radio Station would be blasting through the speakers. I'm ready for your loving. I'm ready for your loving, girl. Yes, that's the title of the track coming from the man like Al Campbell, rotating on the Black Scorpio Records label. Doing niceness on this turntable for all you who desire these styles here. Daddy Crucial has got them now. People would call in and make requests or send in a shout out to big up their family and friends or even enter singing competitions, including my mum and her friends who cannot sing at all. It was a community-centred station with hot topics every day in a week, somewhere to go, be involved in sheer thoughts, debate on current topics or just simply tell someone I love you. No subject was off limits. If it was important or felt necessary, they would talk about it and air it respectively. There were no barriers. Growing up, there were no limitations and as a listener, it felt like there was no rules and regulations for black radio stations. But that was my childhood and this was, my gosh, dare I say it, 33 years ago. In my late teens and early 20s, me and my friends would listen to Heatwave Radio, Radio 1, One Extra, Capital and various pirate stations from the UK. One thing I noticed when listening to commercial stations is that the language is very different. Not that pirates were speaking a different language, but the tone was just different. You know the way topics are discussed? Commercial and BBC stations can be at times very restrictive, tamed or would dance around a subject and not want to sound too harsh, which is a very British trait. One Extra, for example, would push boundaries depending on the time, type of music being played or the presenter. However, there is still a cut-off point as it's the BBC at the end of the day. This year, we have had many major heart-wrenching headlines concerning the Black Lives Matter movement, and I found myself feeling hugely disappointed by the lack of depth and coverage by some of these stations, especially those whose remit is to cater to African and African-Caribbean communities, and that the majority of their presenters are Black too. It made me think that it is almost as though the presenters are only allowed to be 75% of themselves. Maybe that's why these presenters sound so much more free when they are speaking on their own platforms. If you have a regular radio show on a major platform whose license primarily requires them to cater for the African and African-Caribbean communities across the country, then shouldn't the content on it allow presenters to be their authentic self? So, for example, speaking of the BBC specifically, the institution is owned by us, the public, right? So why do I still not feel entirely represented? It reminds me of something Clara Ampho referred to when she said, you cannot enjoy the rhythm and ignore the blues. It is almost as though they allow our rhythms to make it through, but when it comes to our blues, these must be left at the door. Then I have to remind myself that although we all express ourselves differently, how much should I expect from an institution that perhaps doesn't see you for who you really are, a person whose life matters and is worth speaking up for? I guess this is the constant battle. Is this perhaps why Sideman's media space sounds so free? Freedom of speech, freedom of creativity, a place where he can truly be himself, We've also seen the progression of podcasters owning their masters outright. 
They have freedom of speech and listeners who respect and tune into them for who they are. Seems like this just may be the only way we can be free. These are just some of my thoughts from observation as I question why it may be necessary for black presenters to make sure they have other side hustles on their own platforms. I recently started hosting my own show for Ferrity Radio, an independently run black-owned station. This opportunity came to me by surprise, however, you know what they say about divine timing, right? Instead of me focusing on what I would like to hear from other black music radio stations and presenters to say, I have a platform now to do so myself. What I love is that the founder Freestyle encourages me to be myself as he always reminds me that that was the reason why he asked me to be on the show in the first place. Who I am on air is who I am in person. There is no filter. All presenters at Feferity are encouraged to be authentically themselves. I hope it remains this way. Since starting the show, I have received several comments from people applauding me and then some going on to say... What are your plans? Where do you see yourself? Will you move on to a bigger platform? At first, it may seem like a compliment. However, I started to ask, what do these questions really mean? Why is black media not fully respected? Why should the end goal be to work at a commercial or bigger non-black owned platform? What happened to building black owned media platforms? Should I or will I consider one day working at a commercial platform? If I did, would they nurture my voice or would it be another case of having to adhere to rules, regulations and restrictions that may attempt to strip away my blackness? Will it be a case of letting me in for my rhythm, but not my blues? In Safe Hands, The Voices of Black Britain has been written and produced by Aisha Taylor-Kamara with special sound curation and editing by DJ Nitnack. It sits alongside an online exhibition where you can hear more from the contributors in the series and explore some images and videos from the archive. Please visit www.thevoicesofblackbritain.weebly.com.